This week on Physics Twist, Australia's contribution to saving the world, International Women's Day, women and girls in STEM, the truth about aviation pioneer Amelia Earhart, and a chat about fake news. This week, I am your host, Duncan Bell, as Holly is on leave. I'm joined by Kate, who is a science education officer here at Physics Education. Kate, thank you so much for coming in this week. Um, Can you please tell us what you do here and what makes you tick? Cool. So, hi, Duncan. I'm a science presenter, science education officer here at Physics. Um, I did a Bachelor of Science in Nanotechnology and Chemistry and then realized that I love talking about science way more than I liked being in the lab and doing it myself. Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of science communication study and realized that, yeah, what I love doing is sharing ideas and talking to people about what they love about science just as much as I like doing it myself. Beautiful. All right. So I asked you to bring in a couple of um, science and technology stories from the past week. And from what I've been told, you've really put the tea in twist, the second one, and brought in more technology than science, because we've had a lot of science-heavy stuff over the past couple of weeks. So, what's uh, what's the first thing you wanted to talk about? Yeah, so I uh, found an article this week about uh, fake news, but more specifically that uh, on social media, fake news spreads way faster than the truth. Uh, But it's not just down to bots and things that people blame for a lot of this, so online robots sharing content around. Hmm. It's actually people's fault. It's all on us. So before we go any further with that, could you maybe expand, um, particularly for a younger audience, Mm -hmm. what fake news is exactly? Sure. It's a term that's been thrown around a lot, but um, some people may not be familiar with it. Yeah, for sure. So fake news is essentially news that has something wrong with it. So it could be that the entire thing is a lie, is wrong, or it could be something more simple like a tiny fact within it is wrong. And it creates misconceptions and problems when people are trying to understand, especially something that's quite complicated. Um, So you get a lot of fake news around global warming, for example. It Mm. happens quite a lot. And scientists have a real challenge with trying to make sure that the stuff that they communicate is shared properly as Mm. opposed to coming across as fake news and getting misinterpreted by people. Well, that's our job as science communicators, actually, is to make sure that that science is being communicated correctly. But I think this, from what I gather, um, doesn't doesn't just apply to science. No, no, absolutely It's to all kinds of stories in the media, whether they be science or political or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely... Certainly happens a lot in the political sphere, but it's it's all down to all kinds of different things. Everything from whether someone was at an event, a social event, or right the way through to yeah, mm. political and science facts. And so this story basically is saying that fake news is spread easier, faster, or uh, further, faster, deeper, and more broadly than true news, especially wow, that's on troubling. yeah, especially on Twitter. Much as uh, a lot of scientists are on Twitter, so. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's a real problem. Um, it was why, why is that? Do we know? Sort of. So, uh, essentially, the main problems are that catchy headlines are really great and people are really likely to share them. Um, so much so that tweets containing falsehoods, lies, fake news are reached like 1,500 people six times as fast as a real fact. So, that's going to just multiply wow. itself over and over again. It's one of those things where... Like, the payload in a story is what you want to share, and if something sounds ridiculous and big and amazing and really interesting, you're probably more likely to share it, and it's way more likely to go viral. Right. It's like, truth is stranger than fiction, but it doesn't necessarily sound as good. Yeah, yeah, gotta love a good whiz headline that 
might not come across exactly quite right. So how do they um, how do they determine this? Such as this figure that it's six times faster. Yeah, sure. So what they looked at are things called uh, rumor cascades. So it's basically you take the first tweet of a particular idea and see how it was shared and through whom, and it looks like a big tree map. Oh, okay. uh, and what you can see is how fast it reaches a certain number of people and based on who shares it, who likes it, those kinds of things. Yeah. The kinds of things that we do every day on social media and kind of don't think about how we contribute to that. Bots do definitely share it and help it share farther and wider and faster, but that's true of both true and false news. So it wasn't just down to technology that was sharing it widely. It's our fault. Okay. It's people's fault. We have to get better at sharing content yeah. that's real. So these stories, obviously, they originate from from humans. A human would have to make them up. Mm -hmm. And then it's spread partially through the use of bots, but mostly through us yeah, regular mostly, humans. Mostly it'll get picked up, like a human will post it, then some bots will share it, and then a human, it yeah. follows on and follows on. If it was just bots, it'd, they'd die and it'd they'd never be seen. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Because bots don't have followers. No. Well, they, humans have yeah. followers. Like, you know, big movements of followers, I mean. Yeah. Uh, it was true that a lot of the people who shared fake news actually had less followers, but those people weren't interrogating those facts. Yeah. Quite as, and it's quite a numbers as well. game as well. So yeah. there's a huge amount of people that are sharing it. It's eventually going to spread with, through that tree that you were describing. Absolutely. So what sort of implications does this have for us as, well, A, science communicators and B, as just consumers of news generally? Yeah, I think it's really important to dive into the things that you read online. Like, just because something says it online, even if it is a trusted news source or so it looks to be, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be the truth. And it's worth taking that critical eye, that science brain, and having a real look at it. Uh, and we can't just blame technology for it. It's down to yeah. us as people to dig That's in. That's a very good point. I think the reason that science succeeds is because scientists or anyone who... Um, does any sort of scientific process is finding things out for themselves and so you have to apply that same mind to the new cycle yeah in interrogate what you what you read have a real look at it think yeah. about whether you think it sounds right or whether it just sounds a bit odd and if it sounds or a bit odd to you too good to be true yeah it yeah. sounds a bit odd to you too good to be true dig into it have a look see if you can work out if it is the case yeah and maybe um, think about the source that it's coming from. Are they going to have some sort of ulterior motive? Are they going to have an agenda that's behind that? So I think we we all really need to do a better job of interrogating that that news that we read. Yeah, maybe. I'm certainly going to start checking. Especially when we're sharing things <laughs> yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, just do what I do and just don't share anything on social media at all. It works for me. Yeah, but <laughs> like science and sharing and communication, Duncan, communication. Yeah, okay. Maybe I'll start and make sure that I do a good job. There you go. There you go. Be an example. Beautiful. So, um, let me ask you a question. Do you back up your computer? Uh, do I? No. <laughs> should I? Should you? Yes. Do yes. I know that I should? Yes. Okay. Do I do it? Probably not so much. Okay. Secretly, neither do I, but that's neither here nor there. We all know that backing up our computer is a good idea. Yeah. You want to make sure that you have duplicates of your files somewhere else, preferably what we call an off-site Backup. This is not an ad, by the way. I'm just going to say this. You often hear ads for <laughs> off-site backup services. This is not one of them. Yeah, I saw a news story this week that was all about sort of off-site backups, but not applying it just to computers, but to get this plants. What? What? This it's a real novel idea. There is a place in Svalbard, in Norway, called the Global Seed Bank, and the Global Seed Bank is sort of a repository, a backup, if you will of um, seeds of plants from all around the world. 
And this week, Australia actually made a deposit of many different Australian species into this vault. What's been coined as the Doomsday Vault. Ooh. I know. Uh, there was a, a new scientist writer coined that term, so thanks, new scientist. That's good. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is fantastic because it actually brought the number, the total number of seeds in the Doomsday Vault, quotes around mm-hmm. Doomsday Vault, um, to over 1 million. Wow, yeah. that's a lot of seeds. It's a lot of seeds. And so apparently that represents approximately 40% of all the world's plants, which is a really, really great start. Yeah. Um, so basically the idea behind this global seed vault is if there's some sort of global catastrophe that knocks out a whole bunch of species, then again, because they're backed up, we can then sort of restart that agricultural process because agriculture is, as we know, incredibly important. Um, we rely on it for all of our food. So if that goes away through some sort of catastrophe, then it's not the end of the day. We can actually sort of restart that process and replenish our crops and that sort of thing. Are they doing that already? Is that something that they're doing or is it just sitting there being a pile of seeds? So it's a bit of column A, bit of column B. So at the moment, um, it's just sitting there being a pile of seeds in, in Svalbard. So far, as far as I'm aware, there has been one withdrawal mm-hmm. um, of a duplicate from the global seed bank. And that was from the Aleppo seed bank, which was destroyed during the Syrian civil war. So they've made a withdrawal of those seeds that they originally deposited so that they can, again, start to replenish their stocks, which is really interesting. But yeah, so Australia has made its first, not its first, but a giant deposit of 32,000 varieties of grain and pasture crops, um, which is great because it's going to protect Australian farmers as well. So (laughs) in the article that I read about this, the examples of seeds that they deposited oh, yeah? <laughs> called salt bush and get this one kangaroo grass <laughs> oh man like like hardcore very important australian plants yes there, exactly yeah not, i'm assuming something you know great like the eucalyptus or something was in there as well but that's not as eye-catching as australia deposits kangaroo grass into global seed bank yeah i feel like i've heard of salt bush i feel like it it's one of those ones that like around beaches and stuff. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, right, I think. Okay. I might be wrong about that. One of Australia's underappreciated yeah. plants. Um, what I also learned from this is that Australia has a number of its own seed banks or seed libraries, as they're called. One of which is in Mount Annan, which is part of the um, Botanic Gardens, run by the Botanic Gardens. Yeah, it's but right here in Sydney. It's right here in Sydney, which is where we are based. But the reason that we need to have duplicates, say, in other countries, especially in other countries, is because... In Australia, we're naturally prone to things like bushfires. So although, yes, we have that sort of backup, that bank, that backup itself is, you know, risky. So, um, yeah, really great that we've done this, I think. Yeah, for sure. I think it's going to help biodiversity in the future, which is Mm. really important. You should also, if you haven't seen this seed bank in Svalbard, look it up. We can maybe put it in the show notes. It is so cool. Yeah. It is like this sort of bond-looking lair built into the side of this icy mountain oh, thing. Oh, man. It is so cool. I'm so going to look that up after yeah, we're finished here. It's awesome. Um, but inside, it's quite funny. You'd think it'd be all high-tech and, like, you know, operated by robots and stuff. No, it's like back to secret, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> basically just these big blue tubs. <laughs> with Classic science. Yep. <laughs> but, hey, it gets the job done, so... Oh, yeah. Okay, this week... What was uh, International Women's Day? It was. So I believe you wanted to have a little bit of a um, bit of a chat about that. Yeah, and sure. a story related to that. Yeah, Can no, I absolutely. Want? I um, 
as well as like all my science comms stuff, I'm a bit of a champion for women in STEM. So awesome. I thought, you know, it's International Women's Day, got to bring an International Women's Day story uh, in. And, and I read an article about um, bridging the gender gap in STEM and like why girls don't study STEM mm. or like why it seems like they don't study STEM. Yeah. Do you know what the figures are around sort of participation? Yes, I do. Um, yeah. So uh, I did pull up the stats about women in STEM when I was looking up this article and specifically in Australia, because that's where we are. Uh, and the office of the chief scientist said that women were found to make up less than a third of STEM university graduates. So like when they finish their uni degree. But if you're looking at physics and astronomy and engineering and things like that, it's less than that. That is pretty like, shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like we make up 50% of the country. Yeah. And Closer to 51, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're not represented in STEM that way. Yeah, right. It's really unfortunate. Um, yeah. But there's a, there's a few reasons for that. Mm. Um, it's, it's quite complicated though, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. really complicated. So I'm just going to talk about like a couple of the things that I found while deep diving on this article because yep. I thought... You know, I don't want to overload your listeners. Yeah, it's a lot of information. <laughs> um, one's a bit of a like pipeline type thing. We get we throw this pipeline metaphor around a lot when you're talking about women in STEM. Essentially, it boils down to fewer girls choosing to study STEM subjects in secondary school and in university than boys. But right. there's a few reasons for that. Um, a lot of the time, you hear, you know, boys are better at maths. Boys are better at science, girls are better at talking and yeah. stuff. It, it's not really a thing, yeah. um, despite the fact that everyone's told it's a thing. I can't think of any, say, like, physiological reason why that would be the case. So. No. Uh, it's it's like a really tenuous, like, yeah, long... Deeply ingrained. Yeah, which is really kind of where this, this meta-analysis, this massive big study that they did of all this data... Um, kind of got to. So, they, for example, with math, which is the, the one that um, I looked into a little bit more deeply, historically, math favours boys. Like, just mm. that's just a stat. It's really obnoxious, but when someone thinks of a mathematician, they often think of an old guy with white hair with a chalkboard. Yeah. Um, but that gap, even though it historically exists, if, if your society that you live in is more equal... Mm -hmm. like gender equal, that gap disappears. Right. Yeah, it's Are really interesting. Are there examples of this? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the article I was reading, it says that places like um, Norway and Sweden, where they have, they have a whole lot of things in play that try and make their society super equal, Australia does pretty well on this too, um, they end up with more girls in STEM. Mm. Not to the level that we'd like, mm -hmm. but more than other countries. Mm. Um when you look at, uh, I think Turkey was the one that this particular article was focusing on, you could see that it's a slightly less um, culturally equal society for girls going into STEM. Mm. And that's just to do with a lot of other cultural factors, which I'm not going to get into here. Yeah. But yeah, they also did this really interesting study about when girls and boys decide that they're smart. Really? Yeah. What? Apparently people are five. You decide if you can, if you are smart when you are five years old. Wow, that seems younger than I thought. Yeah, right? I, I was like, oh man, that is not cool. Surely you'd need some sort of basis of comparison yep. to make that decision. But by the time you're five, you've only just started kindergarten. So uh, apparently, uh, 
five-year-old girls are just as likely to say that girls can be really, really smart, but when they're six, they think that boys are more likely to be smart than girls. Oh, wow. Yeah. Is that because they've just entered school and I, all of a sudden that is being thrust upon them? That's the only thing that this study I was reading was saying, but yeah. it's really hard to know. Apparently girls are more likely to go for like games and activities where they have to work hard rather than be smart, which is oh, really wow. interesting. So girls apparently have a much better work ethic. <laughs> But uh, boys are yeah, more likely to be seen as intrinsically smart. Um, and that kind of leans towards why you end up with less girls in STEM. Yep. Because what you get is this thing that they deemed, quote, social belongingness, end quote, and self-efficacy, which is essentially your belief that you can succeed, um, especially if there's a you're surrounded by people who are like you. Mm. So if your maths teachers all through school are men, you're probably less likely to think that you can do it as a female, which is really weird to think about. But like thinking back, it completely through my... makes sense. I think that that would be the case. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's really... an unfortunate truth. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's what's really interesting about it is that girls, on average, have a much lower self-efficacy in like science and maths than boys, even though they outperform them at school. Yeah, so they're better at it in school, but they don't think that they are. Mm. It yeah. Um, it's really strange, and there, I've seen studies about how girls will, if they are reminded of the fact that people generally perceive them as being worse at maths, when they're tested on it... They'll be worse at they'll maths. They'll be worse at maths. It's so weird. It's, so if you just, if girls keep getting pummeled by this nonsense that they're worse at STEM subjects, then they inevitably get worse. worse at STEM so subjects. to the girls who are out there listening, we need you to know that... If you're you good like at STEM, <laughs> go for it. Do Please. it. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And that's essentially what this all boiled down to. So the um, the research all kind of comes out with, we need to tackle stereotypes really early. So if you are a girl and you like science, or even if you're a boy and you like science, look for role models that exist for you in the world. Like, just thinking off the top of my head, one of my favourite mathematicians who's like out there on the internet being super math girl is Hannah Fry. Mm. She's all over YouTube. She's all over podcasts being a math whiz. And it's great because yeah. she's a female mathematician. You know, people like David Attenborough are great as faces of STEM, but you know, if you're There's out there, female representation. Yeah, as well. yeah. Be be someone cool. Be and, the person that you want to see. Yeah, and there are really good examples out there, but I think that there's still room for more. Oh, for sure. So, for sure. yeah, to the girls who are out there listening, be that person. Yeah. That's what we need. You know, if, if you're like 15 and you know that there's a six-year-old in your school who loves science, like you can be the role model at 15 yeah. to a six-year-old. That's totally fine. They I had Foster their growth. Yeah. yeah. I, I just totally awkwardly that person when I was in high school, but I was also... <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Young girls need individuals that they are more likely to relate to if they need to be persuaded that they're not going to like to abandon all of that STEM potential. Like mm. you've got it. You can do it. We believe yeah. in you. Like, like I said before, there is intrinsically no reason why girls should be nope. worse at STEM subjects than boys. There is literally no reason. And often they are. So if anyone, if anyone says otherwise... They're wrong. Then they're dead wrong, <laughs> they're my so friend. wrong. <laughs> and I would say, you know, give them a good smack. But don't do that either. That's yeah, yeah. Oh, by <laughs> the way, boys, still love you. Still, still mm. think you're great. Still think you're great at science. Just wanted to, like, put one out there for the girls for yeah. International Women's Day. Okay. If someone says that they're better, at you, better than you at this, give them the intellectual smackdown. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can agree on that. Yeah, definitely not the physical one. It, it, yeah, no. 
Um, so another thing that I wanted to talk about this this, this week. <laughs> you want to try that again? No, I'm keeping that one. Um, <laughs> is again relating to uh, a very inspiring woman of history um, called Amelia Earhart. Have you heard of Amelia I Earhart? I have heard of her. Yep, yep. Um, so, for those who haven't heard of Amelia Earhart, for some maybe some of our younger listeners, she was an American um, pioneer of aviation. Uh, she was an author as well, and she was actually the first woman to fly across the um, Atlantic Ocean ever, um, which I think she did in the late twenties, early thirties. Yeah, exactly sure. Pretty early, like she was doing some of long, her longer flights in like the mid to late thirties. So yeah, yep. you're talking around that time. Around that time. So yeah, she was incredibly famous during during um, her lifetime, but she actually disappeared in 1937 while trying to do a, I think it was a circumference of the globe. She was traveling with a guy called Fred Noonan, um, but their plane disappeared in the Pacific Ocean um, during, their, during their flight and um, no wreckage ever discovered, no remains. Well, there were remains discovered, but I'll get to that. Um, no wreckage discovered, so it was a big. There was a lot of hubbub about where the hell did she, where the yeah. heck, where the heck did she go? Yeah, poop. She just disappeared off the face of the planet. That Com- doesn't seem right. Completely gone. So um, it's a really big deal because again, she was really, really famous, and everyone's everyone's wondering what happened to her. So there were some theories around her her disappearance, some of which included the fact that well, the idea that she might have been captured while spying on the Japanese, um, or that she survived the flight and then moved to New Jersey, changed her name, and remarried. Um, these kind of seem a bit outlandish to me. I mean, look, you're a famous pilot flying across the globe trying to come yeah. and you give it all up and... I don't um, know. I yeah. don't, I'm not buying it. Highly unlikely. Um, yeah, anyway, so no one really knew what happened to her. But this week, news came out that um, a bone analysis had been conducted on some remains that were actually discovered on an island in the Pacific in 1940 and no one knew what these bones were from really. Um, they were sort of hypothesized maybe they're, maybe they're Amelia Earhart's but they did a bone analysis back in 1940 something and determined that they belonged to a man. So that theory was put to bed. Yeah. They've, like I said, they've done a bone analysis on, the, on those remains again and they've actually determined they did belong to Amelia Earhart. Wow. Yeah. So it's kind of like she has been lost this whole time, but also not. She yeah. was under our noses the whole time. So a guy called Richard Jantz, who is a professor emeritus of anthropology at the University of Texas, we think, yep. um, re-examined some bone measurements that were conducted in 1940 by a guy called D.W. Hoodless. These bones have now been lost. Don't know anything about them anymore where they've been gone, but the, the measurements are still there. And Jance has determined that it's more likely that these bones belonged to Amelia Earhart and not some man. And it's not that Hoodless did a bad job of his bone analysis, it's just that in 1940 that was not a particularly advanced science. And now we know so much more than we did then. So when you combine the fact that the measurements with the science that we know now, are more likely to belong to a woman, and the fact that they were the only bones found in the area that Amelia Earhart supposedly disappeared, um, they're saying higher than 99% likelihood okay. that they actually belonged to um, to Amelia Earhart. So it was on an island called Nikumaroro. Good name for an island. Great name for an island. 
And so the sort of current theory is that she effectively died there as a castaway. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So That's, that, that feels like an appropriate, like, it's a sad way to go, but in the same breath, like, bad woman who, like, flies around in an airplane and dies as a castaway on an island. I'm kind of okay with that. There's a certain romanticism yeah. around that. I mean, yes, it is a tragic thing. Because, you know, you could say that she could have gone on to lead an even more fulfilling life and doing more for women in aviation. But there is something certainly bad about that. Yeah, and I, like, I feel like almost the fact that she disappeared made her even more bad. Because mm. she was this person who disappeared and everyone knows that she disappeared. Yeah. And so she's this story so that cemented her legacy, I yeah. guess, um, <laughs> in the future. Yeah, for sure. So there you go. Wow. We now know what happened. We think we know what happened well, to her. We think we know as sure as we can be at the moment. Mm. Just like they were sure in 1940 that it was a... Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the, the study of forensics will continue to advance and maybe we'll come to a different conclusion in the future, just as happens within all disciplines of science. But um, they seem pretty, pretty darn confident now. So I think that's really, really interesting. Yeah, I think so too. I think it shows how science can change over time and that, like, you can find new discoveries from old things. Yeah, even. absolutely. Okay, so that's a uh, that's a wrap on physics twist for this week. So thank you for joining us, Kate. No worries. Thank you for sharing your love of science with us, me. Um, and don't forget that you can meet the wonderful people of physics at your school, vacation, care, or birthday party. Just go to physicseducation.com.au. That's F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S education.com.au. Also, if you like this, you can rate us on iTunes. It really helps us out. We'll be back next week uh, with another educator from Physics Education. In the meantime, if you'd like to hear some thought-provoking discussions with leading education providers and other hot content, you can check out the Physics Ed podcast run by the beautiful Ben Newsom. Catch you next week.